What Came Next is intended for mature audiences only. Episodes discuss topics that can be triggering, such as emotional, physical, and sexual violence, suicide, and murder. I am not a therapist, nor am I a doctor. If you're in need of support, please visit somethingwaswrong.com forward slash resources for a list of nonprofit organizations that can help. Opinions expressed by my guests on the show are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of myself or Broken Cycle Media. Resources and source material are linked in the episode notes. Thank you so much for listening. Olivia Percaccio is an educator, wife, daughter, sister, and friend to many. She is also the co-victim of a mass murder and shooting. I am extremely grateful that she told me her story privately almost two years ago after I shared my own experiences on Something Was Wrong. We formed a bond over some of the legal, media, and emotional parallels in our journeys. However, this is the first time she has chosen to publicly share what came next for her family and community after experiencing such painful grief while being forced into the public eye. In the beginning, my dad and I, we didn't really have the best relationship. We fought a lot, but we also shared special memories together. It was complex because my parents are divorced. I had my dad on the weekend and then my mom on the weekdays. I know my dad really worked his ass off for us. It was just a really complicated relationship. When he started dating again, I didn't really like my dad bringing new people around. As a kid, you don't want anyone replacing your mom. When Michelle came around, I didn't really want to like her. She was my dad's girlfriend, and I wasn't sure if she would last. I didn't want to get attached to someone who wouldn't stick around. In the beginning, it was a lot of unsure feelings mixed with teenage hormones. But eventually, Michelle grew on me, and she became a really big part of our lives. She made my dad happy, and I hope he did the same for her. It's strange to me because after all this time, everything is a big blur. It's snapshots of time that kind of swirls together. I have all these pockets of time that I can see, almost like the pensive in Harry Potter. I feel like I'm just sticking my face in it and I could see all these beautiful things, but it just doesn't make sense in a linear way. I can see her smile. She had the hugest smile. She also had really big hair. I just have these faint memories of driving her car when I got my license. She was an amazing mom. She was always the life of the party. She was just fun to be around, super upbeat and always enjoying herself. I can remember the smell of her cooking when I walked into her home. I know she really liked to cook. I remember playing catch with her son before dinner when the sun was setting. My dad and Michelle liked to hang out a lot with friends. They did bonfires and went to the river, barbecues, or they just spent time at home playing games. We'd started to include family dinners into the routine. I started to accept and love the idea that Michelle could be a permanent fixture in our lives. Not every relationship is perfect. My dad and Michelle had their up and downs, but having already blended our families, it was seeming like it was the real deal. I think that's why her murder hit me so hard, because the time that I spent not being as close to her as I should have, I won't ever get that time back. 
if I had known that there was no future, that the days were numbered, I would have loved to get to know Michelle more deeply than I did. I can see her face when I told her goodbye for the last time. We hugged. She said, I'll see you next week. A couple days later, that was when it all happened. In 2011, I was a junior. I was 16. The memories before, it's kind of a blur. But the day that she was killed is the most vivid memory that I have. Even childhood memories. It's so vivid to me. I knew that Michelle had plans for one of her son's birthdays. And I believe the last time I saw her was a Sunday night dinner. I remember giving her a hug. She said that she would see me the next week. It was the Wednesday that the shooting took place. The day of the shooting, it was the most vivid, clear day that you could imagine. It was beautiful blue skies, not a cloud in sight. I remember my warm locker, I'm opening it and I'm thinking about how I'm so excited for the week. I'm so excited to see my dad, my family, just teenage stuff. I'm walking to my bus stop. There wasn't really a high amount of social media at the time, but I remember kids saying, oh, there was the shooting. I'm hearing weird chirps here and there. The shooting, the shooting. And I'm like, what the heck is everyone talking about? They were saying a town over, there's the shooting. And I'm like, well, that's where I live. That's concerning. People are kind of making jokes about it. Then the details got more intricate. There's a shooting at a salon. Who would shoot up a salon? I'm like, okay, this is getting weird. This is getting really specific. I don't know what's going on. I get on the bus. I'm kind of wary hearing a shooting at a salon near where I live, but I can't really back it up. As soon as I sat on the bus, I got this sinking pit in my stomach. I just kept thinking about it and I thought, well, Michelle works at a salon. I know she's estranged from her ex-husband. I just couldn't accept it. I couldn't accept there was a shooting at all. But when we got on the bus, my intuition grew. The bus stopped at a certain place every single day. As we're heading to that stop, the bus driver was like, oh shit, we got to reroute these kids. And as we turn, I get a glimpse of where the salon was. I see cops, fire trucks. We turned in a weird way and went to another bus stop. So we completely skipped the stop I was supposed to get off on and went to a different one that was still near my house. It was then that I was like, this is real. I didn't know the details, but I knew she was probably dead. I didn't know it was a mass shooting. I thought maybe he had gone in and killed her. I didn't know, but I got home as quick as I could. I tried to contact my dad. I turned on the news. That's when I found out Michelle's ex-husband had gone into her work. He killed her. He killed her friends. Sorry. It just, it just fucked. It was 20 minutes that he went in there. And at the time it was deemed the worst mass shooting in Orange County. It was just really fucked. He killed her. He killed people that were doing hair, their mom's hair, killed people in the parking lot. It's just really upsetting. The victims, I want them to know I'm honoring them, that they're not nameless. Sorry if I mispronounce anyone's name. Michelle Fournier, Laura Webb, Randy Fannin. He was the owner of the salon. Lucia Condis, Michelle Fast, Victoria Buzo, Christy Wilson, and David Collette. Patty. Her daughter was doing her hair. She survived and her daughter didn't. I get so fucking mad. There's no words. He had a car full of guns. He was wearing a bulletproof vest. This made it seem like he was preparing for a fight. We didn't know where he was headed. And with the bulletproof vest, we're like, well, shit, is he going to go to his son's school? Is he going to kill my dad? I mean, my dad was her boyfriend. So we just didn't know. 
When he fled the scene, we didn't know if he was captured or what his next move was going to be. There was a lot of misinformation circling around about who was alive and who was dead because the media swarmed the situation. They wanted to be first to break the story regardless of accuracy. It was just super frustrating because they were reporting the wrong people had passed away, but everyone knew he was the shooter. His arrest, though, ended up being very swift. He didn't get very far from the scene, thank God. It wasn't until the following day that it really sunk in. I woke up and I was like, wow, that was some fucked up dream. Then I look at my dad's bloodshot eyes and I'm like, fuck, we have to live through this. I felt like I was walking around like a zombie. I wasn't present. I hear a lot from something was wrong and other survivors. A lot of common language like being numb. It's so accurate. There's no other description. You could have bumped into me and I wouldn't know you were there. My head felt like it was underwater. Nothing looked or sounded as clear as it had before. I had to go to school the next day. I don't know why that decision was made. At the time, I was so weak and angry. I remember everyone walking around talking about classes, school dances, friends, normal high school stuff. The day before, I was at my locker being that person. And now I'm sitting here thinking, my stepmom is fucking murdered. What do I do with that? I felt like I was the only one whose world was falling around me. That was just surreal. The whole day, my eyes were brimming with tears. I was just so angry. I felt like my innocence was gone. I didn't know how any of these families were going to be okay. It pissed me the fuck off. I didn't know if he was going to stay in jail. What was going on with the trial? Of course, he was captured. But I didn't know what was going to happen to Michelle's children. It made me sick circling through all these variables all day. I couldn't eat. I was just completely nauseous, heartbroken. There's not enough adjectives in the world to describe that. The day of the tragedy was the worst because it's the unimaginable. But I would also argue that the day after is just as horrible. That's when it actually feels real. When you wake up and it's not just some horrible dream, it's now your reality. You have to be here and carry that with you and you have to find a way to navigate it. When we had the first vigil a few days after the shooting, I know that our small community completely broke. It's hard to fathom that somewhere so safe could be home to this horrible crime. When something like this happens, it kind of feels like, well, if it could happen here, it could happen anywhere. At least that's what it felt like for me. It ruined my sense of safety. I go to a crowded bar and look for the exits. I became really close with one of the first responders and one of the survivors of the shooting. I know how truly resilient someone who has overcome this has to be just to take that first breath in the morning. This isn't something that you can live through and come out the other side. A part of you is always reliving the tragedy, hearing the gunshots and feeling the fear. I can't speak for all survivors or victims and I wouldn't try to. But from the impact statements and the relationships I've made, I can tell you that the man who walked into that salon and killed those people ruined more lives than you can count. The community just rallied around everyone. It felt like a lot of love from a lot of different places. It was nice because it was very black and white. We we're trying to get him behind bars. Businesses were welcoming people with open arms, trying to give each other what they needed. And I think that was really nice to see. It's also really complex. From what I saw between my dad, myself, and my brother is that we absolutely lost our shit. I think you can get really lost trying to understand and process something that is truly unfathomable. My dad busied himself by really throwing himself into the aftermath. 
He connected with a lot of victims and families. He wanted to be at every trial and watch this piece of shit go to prison for the rest of his life. My dad wanted to welcome Michelle's family to grieve with him. It seemed like it was a month long wake where everyone was drinking and mourning, celebrating Michelle, sharing stories and memories. But we are also discussing how this even happened to begin with. Everyone was trying to figure out how we could help each other. It was just a lot of information for everyone to process. There was so much sadness and pain, and I don't think a word exists that describes that kind of grief. Eight funerals, so many people who needed comfort, so many people who were feeling lost in the dark. My dad was trying to do whatever he could to feel like he could give some comfort and show solidarity with people in our community. I watched him step out of his role as a father as his grief became his full-time job. It was the first time I had ever seen a parental figure cry or openly show the emotions they so often tried to hide from their children. I remember lots of nights where I couldn't sleep. I would hear these weird noises coming from the bathroom and I'd find him crying. At first he tried to hide it, but then you can't really hide that pain forever. While that was challenging and heartbreaking, especially from a parent-to-child relationship, I did appreciate that we were going to tackle our trauma with complete transparency. My dad was trying so hard to make sense of this like everyone else. When the tragedy struck, I really needed to give myself a role or a job. So I said, okay, my job is going to be to take care of my dad. So I let him tell me all this crazy shit about the shooting, about how he was feeling. And that was my job. I felt this fire inside of me that my purpose in this tragedy would be to be an adult figure for my father. It probably wasn't the best coping strategy coming from a teenager, but I thought it was the best way to make sure that my dad was still here and still present. He talked to me about a lot of things I probably shouldn't have known at a young age. Sometimes it was heavy. We talked about survivor's guilt or the crime scene. My dad had a lot of information about that. Sometimes it was about memories he shared with Michelle. Sometimes we just cried because there was nothing left to say. I wouldn't change that choice to be there for my dad. We did the funerals and vigils together and became close with survivors and family members. But having so much knowledge of the crime, the situation and seeing so much grief and heartbreak, it gave me nightmares for a really long time. I thought about what it felt like to be murdered. I dreamt about what it looked like when he walked into the salon. I dreamt about him eventually going into my house. I had nightmares that he killed me, my dad, or his surviving children. I was afraid that he would escape and finish what he started. I couldn't watch anything on the TV because I would notice how many shootings they talked about on the news. I couldn't tell if I was just a magnet for that information or if the world was just getting worse. Each one left me in a ball crying on the floor. I knew how those people felt. I knew their trauma and I knew how painful it was, which is kind of how I felt hearing your story. The hard part about his trial is the ups and downs. Everyone knew what had happened and how he did it. He was completely without a doubt guilty. I thought we would just throw him away in jail forever and not have to think about him ever again. But his trial lasted from when it happened in 2011 all the way until September 22nd, 2017 which is outrageous. It took six years for him to finally get a sentencing. From my understanding, the district attorney was trying to go for the death penalty. I even have this article in front of me and just a couple days after the shooting, they're already saying death penalty for sure. He ended up pleading not guilty and got a lawyer, of course. 
So this one straightforward case is also super painful and we just wanted to get it over with because we wanted to focus on our own healing. We wanted to focus on advocacy and being there for each other. It was now just super complex. He had leverage to fight against the death penalty. He said that the snitch being used illegally violated his civil rights. Therefore, the death penalty should be thrown out. There's this back and forth of him saying no to the death penalty, the district attorney not being able to let it go because the DA really wanted the death penalty to show he was cracking down on crime. It wasn't like a mistrial of where he was gonna maybe get out. It was just that it was taking for fucking ever. It was just a lot of frustration because it was this locker on our healing process. I don't think they once ever said, hey guys, are you fine with life without the possibility of parole? I'm sure there was more legal stuff happening in between, but that was basically the limbo that we were all in for six years. It was so ridiculous that they let it go on for so long. And the transcripts, you can read how disrespectful, how fucking rude and evil he is. When people are talking, he has to be corrected to stop fucking making faces at people. He's fucking childish. Finally, he said he would plead guilty. The district attorney was going to change the sentence to life without the possibility of parole. What makes me really livid is that this piece of shit said in the transcripts that switching to a guilty verdict was the right thing to do. It's such bullshit because the right thing to do would have not to step in to the salon and do what he did. The other thing I found out is that apparently he got in an argument with Michelle. He loaded up, put on his vest. He went to the fucking beach and he sat there. He was like, hmm. And then he went and did it anyway. Fuck you. The other thing is that in the fucking testimony, he called the other people in the salon that he killed. He called those people collateral damage. How dare you say that about someone? September 22nd, 2017, he got eight counts for murder. Then he got one count for attempted murder because there was a survivor. He got 232 years to life without the possibility of parole. And he got an extra 25 years for a gun enhancement. During those six years of waiting for his sentencing, every movement in the trial needed a full article update repeating every salacious detail of the shooting you want to hear an aside? I have all this stuff out because I'm a visual person. I'm not off the cuff. So I literally have transcript, transcript. I have an article just of the victims. I know I'm not being specific, but I want them to know that I'm honoring them, that they're not just some nameless. But in the article, right, it's this beautiful tribute to all the victims. And then next to it is this photo of him smiling like what the fuck? Every little update was the opportunity for a new photo. I know he enjoyed the limelight. Every picture he was smiling in, or at least grinning, and it was infuriating. He had this smug fucking look on his face every single time. It would be so triggering to randomly come upon one of those articles because I never wanted to see his face again. Since 2017, I haven't looked into it further because when we finally got that sentencing and it finally was ended, I just didn't bother looking further into it. Good riddance, honestly. I just spent six years, six years. People saw him leaving with a literal smoking gun. Six fucking years. During the six years, what that looked like besides irrational fear that like, oh, maybe he'll get out of jail. It was just a lot of healing, coping, understanding my fears, being gentle with myself. My biological mom studied thanatology. She was a grief counselor and a mortician. 
her having those roles really helped me have the language to try and process what was going on. I'm really thankful for that because I've had a lot of grief since Michelle passed away. She always tried to help with something insightful and tender. We often wrestled with my question of since Michelle wasn't my actual mom, what does that make my grief? Why am I feeling this so deeply? We talked about disenfranchised grief and what that looks like for me. It was probably hard for her to watch my dad and I fall apart knowing there was better ways to cope. There was a point she actually tried to talk to me about how it was unhealthy to take on my father's pain. That as a teenager, I shouldn't really know all the gritty details about a mass shooting. It wasn't my job to be the parent and that I needed to take care of myself too. I ended up telling her that I just couldn't leave my dad. She didn't take it personally, but looking back now, I know she was right. I just trip out because my mom knowing healthy coping skills and just watching from the other side, I can't imagine how my mom felt the hopelessness of wanting to save us, but knowing we needed to save ourselves. After the shooting, my dad eventually did end up dating one of the survivors. Her name was Lisa. Lisa was in the bathroom at the time of the shooting. She talked to me a little bit about her trauma. I'm reading her impact statement. My dad screamed at him. He said, look her in the eyes. It was intense. She was very brave because she did go into a lot of details that she didn't have to, but she really wanted to show how horrible that whole experience was. And I think everyone who gave those impact statements, they were very brave for divulging that information. I was reading it crying because I can't imagine that kind of pain. It broke my heart. I just know her better now and it just breaks me even more. Lisa was a rock for me during that time when more shootings would happen on the news or we were just feeling something unexplainable that really only the people who have been through it could understand. We would always reach out to each other. We would text each other, are you okay? And she would say, yeah, I'm okay. Are you okay? We were able to talk a little bit more freely about the shooting. Talking with her, it helped me understand the tenacity that someone who survived this really has to have. It was just really heartbreaking that someone who could be so wonderful, kind and nurturing would have to go through this. She talked to me a little bit about her survival and I let her vent a little bit. That was just our relationship. Sorry, I miss her a lot. A couple years ago, she passed away from cancer. It's sad. She was my buddy. She would check on me in a way that other people didn't know how to. And that's like fine. I would never be like, oh, why didn't you ask me something a certain way? But sorry, it makes me emotional because we just had that shooting and I wanted to text her. It was the first mass shooting that I had to deal with by myself. It was really hard. It was extra hard because it was a school and that's my job. This is another layer. Like as an educator, it's a huge trigger. I had to have training at school. It was like barricade the door. And it's like, I fucking know all these trainings talking about what to do if there's a shooter, what to use as a weapon. My training even said that sometimes you have to leave the kid. We live in a world where if a fucking person comes into the school, some kid is freezing in the bathroom. They're hiding. They're scared. I have to leave because I have to take the majority and just hope they can hide well, I guess. It's fucked. That's the world we live in right now. And it makes me so pissed. 
for me personally, I think it was the repetition of unnecessary information because, yes, we know these people were murdered and we know that it was horrific. I feel like sometimes when it came to updates and things about the trial, it would just repeat the same information. I remember when I would accidentally see something like, oh, Michelle's ex-husband murdered her over and over again. Why can't we just go straight to the point? Today, Scott keeps appealing his death penalty sentence. Why do we need to keep repeating this information? The media really thrives on negativity, sad stories, horrible things that are happening. But I wish that there was more sensitivity, especially because Michelle's one of her surviving sons was very young at the time and he could have had access to any of that information at any time. It's just very insensitive. As the years went on and having social media, I'd be scrolling Facebook and then an article would pop up with this huge ass picture of his face. It just really inhibited my healing process because I had this rational fear of seeing him in public. I have a very vivid memory of having a really good day and having peace. I was just on my phone and one of those articles popped up and it's one of those things where your whole body gets these chills. I just felt like I went a step backwards in a way. I wish that they would be more sensitive to people's triggers. I think when we think of soldiers and PTSD or people who survive certain tragedies, we think of really common triggers like loud noises. I think the media doesn't realize that like putting a huge picture of our perpetrator that can just randomly be seen at any time, that is super triggering. The perfect example, I keep coming back to it, but is this like stinking article that's sitting in front of me. Why can't we talk about who was lost and what we can do to change what happened instead of just harping on these details of this horrible shit? Why can't we be more proactive? Why can't we say, okay, how can we be better? What can we do differently? There's a difference between salacious information and factual content. Yes, I would like to know when his trial is. I want to know when I can give an impact statement, but I don't need to be reminded over and over again of something that I'm trying to heal from. The perpetrator goes to jail and it ties it up in a neat bow and it's like, but what's next? How did they get through this? Because I want to get through this. The survivors are important. The families are important. Like those are the people that are going to help us make change and help us understand how to solve these massive issues in our society. How did you heal? How did you navigate your grief? How did you end up where you are now? At first, my coping mechanisms were very unhealthy. I used alcohol to escape my trauma. I figured that if I couldn't understand Michelle's murder or didn't want to think about it anymore, I would just forget it. I was letting go, but I learned that the alcohol was only masking my trauma. I pushed the pain so far down that I thought it was gone for good. But when you push it down, it starts to come back up again. So it was this vicious cycle of feeling miserable and drinking. Then it would just keep coming back time and time again. I realized that alcohol was not the solution to the problem. It was only a distraction and it was delaying my healing process. I wasn't actually doing the work to understand my pain. I was hiding from it. I wish I had known sooner how much relief I would feel by talking to a therapist, by being honest with my loved ones and connecting with the survivor community. I found a lot of comfort in therapy. I also like screaming into the void. That helps a lot. I also found purpose in being a part of communities that fight against gun violence, like March for Our Lives. 
Healing has also looked like surrounding myself with kind friends and finding peace within the everyday in the little moments that I used to take for granted. I just got married. We've been dating for six years. I have a really sweet story. Actually, he was finally sentenced in 2017, which means that was when I was freshly dating my now husband. We would have been dating for a couple years or so. He knew the trauma. He knew what I was going through. He really helped me overcome my triggers in some way. One of the big ones is the anniversary itself. I had a real hard time navigating through the day. I would be flooded with all these memories, reoccurring thoughts and feelings. Just a really bad, yucky day for me. I would often dig myself in a hole and just drink that day away, not wanting to acknowledge it. But a few years ago, he had an idea to reclaim that day and do something that would honor my experience and the victims. We went out of town and shared a few stories about Michelle. He just helped me reclaim that day. And I really appreciate that. So now when the day comes up again, it's not this scary, overbearing thing. Now it's just a day. He was so sensitive with my triggers, like loud noises. He's really in tune with that. It's almost ebbed them away in a sense. Having someone who honors them and acknowledges them, now it's not this scary thing because it doesn't feel like I'm alone in that. It's really sweet. I'm just working through all of my grief. I feel like I've come to this really good place in my life. I have to say it took a very long time to get here. It was very tumultuous, but I'm happy to be here I'm in this weird point in my life right now where if all my friends are hanging out and gathered at a bonfire like a birthday, I find myself unconsciously standing back and watching all these people that I love who are pieces of this puzzle of finding myself again. And I almost have tears in my eyes. I'm frozen and I'm watching them and I'm just so at peace until someone's like, yo, what are you staring at? I find myself doing that a lot lately. Just really thankful for those people. I hope that those who are dealing with trauma or loss continue to be kind and gentle with themselves and set the pace for their own healing journey. Because I know when I started doing that, I started to feel a lot better. Just not letting people tell me how to grieve or questioning why I'm grieving, but just working it at my own pace. I've learned that it's really important to honor your grief when you feel it. It doesn't matter how much time has passed or how much healing you've done. Sometimes the grief you feel is small and you can move on with your day. Sometimes the grief is all encompassing. You sob so hard that your heart aches and your chest burns. I actually had one of those cries last week. Maybe it's a cry that brings you back to when it happened, even though it's been years, and that's okay. It doesn't invalidate your healing process or make you weak. Even if you don't realize it, you're always in some way grieving a little bit. Events your loved ones won't be attending or milestones they won't see you achieve. It's heartbreaking, and while missing your loved one doesn't go away, each day forward does become a little easier. It's also really hard to make those steps to heal, to understand, to find yourself again. I've been in that dark hole. Fuck it, I'm just not going to try. But it's really brave to take that first step, even if it's the tiniest baby step possible, because all of that is valid and that baby step is actually bigger than you realize. It's just important to take that time. Kind of a side note. It would always piss me off when people would say, oh, like, how can you still be sad? Why can't you just get over it? Someone actually said that to me, like, just get over it. How can I get over this when this is my life? 
I would say surround yourself with kind people. Be patient, be loving to yourself. The tiniest steps are so huge and so brave. It's just about taking it at your pace. Don't let someone say, hey, time's up. It took me six years to crawl out of the hole. It took me 11 years to stop drinking heavily. It took a lot of baby steps. It took me 11 years to talk about it. And I have to tell you, if it was any year before this, I would not be here talking about this. I was also telling my husband, I was the first time talking about it publicly, even about my sobriety and some of the elements of this. It was because I trusted you. You wanted to know about me. You wanted to know about Michelle and Lisa and the survivors and the first responders. That's the reason why I'm here talking to you. I've always wanted to use this as a tool for something good. I feel like I finally found a balance of accepting what happened, but not letting it sit there in vain. I try to use what happened to have these hard conversations to try to spread awareness about gun violence or even how some things aren't right in the world. Like, hey, maybe we shouldn't be consuming that or participating in that. I feel comfortable where I'm at in my journey right now, especially getting sober, being brave enough finally to process things sober. I think that's a huge step for me. Finding that balance recently has been really rewarding. Even having little conversations here and there makes me feel really good that I'm still bringing it up 11 years later, trying to create some kind of compassion and sympathy. We never know what someone's going through. Be gentle with other people. Don't be quick to do something that might be triggering to someone else. Take a slower approach with each other. You're shifting the conversation so you can shift perspective. I love that. Thank you for doing that with us today. If somebody wants to reach out to you and they feel so inclined. My Instagram handle, it's L-I-V-Y-D-E-E-12. Everyone is welcome. Come join. We could go to victims marches together. You're amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you for letting me share everything. I've just had so much on my heart for so long. It feels like a weight has been lifted off my shoulders. Michelle Fournier's ex-husband entered Salon Meritage on October 12, 2011, where Michelle worked. He proceeded to slaughter her and seven other salon goers in cold blood. Olivia named those victims earlier in this episode. There were also survivors of the shooting. They include Hattie Stretz and the woman that would eventually become Olivia's stepmom, Lisa Powers. As the case progressed, the Orange County Sheriff's Department allegedly used a jailhouse informant. Although the use of informants is generally allowed, gaining information from them without their legal representation present is not. The informant allegedly used in the case of Michelle Fournier's murder had legal representation that was not present at the time of their interview. This is what prolonged the legal process for the Seal Beach community and further traumatized the victim's loved ones and friends. According to gunviolence.org, in the first 24 days of 2023, there had already been over 70 lives lost and over 160 people injured by America's mass shootings. These murders have been committed everywhere and prove no place is sacred elementary, middle, and high schools, universities, churches, synagogues, and grocery stores, to name a few. However, mass murders and shootings are over twice as common in private homes. Stay safe, everyone. 
Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Next week on What Came Next. I had empathy for my mom because of that relationship. I saw how someone could fall in love with someone that was so terrible. I'm so lucky to be here. I feel like a cat with nine lives. What Came Next is a Broken Cycle Media production co-produced by Amy B. Chesler and Tiffany Reese. If you'd like to help support What Came Next, you can leave us a positive review, support our sponsors, or follow Broken Cycle Media on Instagram at Broken Cycle Media. Check out the episode notes for sources, resources, and to follow our guests. Thank you again for listening.